Welcome to the Teach the Geek podcast, where engineer and author Neil Thompson talks with STEM professionals about public speaking, a struggle for many of us. Whether you're a novice public speaker or a proficient one, you can always pick up tips on how to improve. Here's your host, Neil Thompson. Welcome to another edition of Teach the Geek interviews. My name is Neil Thompson. I am the founder of Teach the Geek. It's an online platform for science and engineering professionals. The first offering of the platform is a public speaking course called Teach the Geek to Speak. To learn more about it, you can go to teachthegeek.com. Again, that is teachthegeek.com. Today, my guest is Dr. Grace Lee. She is the founder of Mastery Insights. She's also a podcaster and YouTuber. Her career path is rather interesting as she got a PhD and then did something with it that I don't not sure many people do. So I'm really interested to learn if that was her path all along. Welcome to Teach the Geek Interviews, Dr. Lee. Neil, it is my pleasure to be here. I am honored and privileged to speak to you and your viewers. Thank you for having me. You got it. So from the bit of research I did on you, I saw that you initially studied biochemistry and biophysics. Where'd that interest come from? Bio, it was interesting when you're in your early 20s, you know, late teens, early 20s out of high school, you tend to listen to your friends. So really, the way I decided to go into biochemistry was I went to I was an out of out of I was an international student, got to this place that I didn't know anybody, met some friends and everyone was majoring in biochem. And so they we were all in our second year and trying to decide what, what did you choose as your major? And we asked each other, what did you choose? And most of my friends chose biochem. I didn't want to be alone in choosing a major that no one else did. So I went with the crowd. And that's true, honestly. That's how it happened. And I thought that at that time I wanted to go into to, to go into medical school. And I felt that the justification, the logical justification that comes after that was that, well, biochemistry will give me the breadth that I need to be competitive for that. So that's how it happened. Honest truth. <laughs> you know, I used to be embarrassed by the way I ended up in engineering. Now I don't feel so bad anymore because it looks like we're, we're in this together. So uh, unlike you, it wasn't friends that, that, that suggested engineering. It was my dad. So I ended up in engineering because he said do engineering. And I had no other plans on what to do in college. So I said, okay, engineering it is. So that's, that's kind of how I ended up there. Luckily, it, it, it worked out okay. But man, if it hadn't, man, it, it would have been a, it would have been a problem. <laughs> engineering is not easy. <laughs> it isn't. It's a full course load and then some, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, no question. So then I also noticed that you got, you didn't stop there. So I don't know if your friends told you to, to go on and get a master's and a PhD. <laughs> And then you ended up doing that, but you did. You mentioned medical school, but you eventually you you went the I guess the more academic route. What happened there? The reason why I didn't end up going, I didn't end up choosing to go to medical medical school. No, don't get me wrong. I wrote the MCATs. I wrote them in London because I did my master's degree in Scotland in Edinburgh at that time. So it made sense for me to write it there. And so I, I flew to London and wrote it there. And I didn't end up applying or going because I really felt like my I feel I felt like. In because I had a, in my history with uh, with having lost my mother with, uh, through dramatic brain, brain injury, she was we were in a car accident and she had passed away. And I really felt like at that time from from a, from a child, right, I couldn't understand why doctors couldn't help her. And instead of being the person as a physician, instead of being the person 
doing the diagnosis and telling a patient, well, there's nothing we can do. This is the, right. This is the most we can do. And we can just manage symptoms. I wanted to be the person who could do something about it. And at that time I chose to do research because the whole, the whole foundation of a PhD candidate is to generate new knowledge, new knowledge that changes the way down the road, new knowledge that changes the way that medical care system functions and the way that physicians prescribe and the way that we're able to help patients in ways that we couldn't before. And that was the impetus behind doing an MD, doing a PhD versus an MD. Gotcha. So then, at least from what I understand, most people that do PhDs, their goal eventually is to stay in academia and become professors. Was that your goal? And if, if it was, and you didn't end up doing so, what was the reason? Well, I definitely felt the pressure. You know, when you're in graduate school, there is an unwritten unwritten rule that the epitome of success is to become a tenure professor. And I really felt that pressure. But, you know, the reality is that so many students are graduating and there aren't a lot of positions that are open for students to stay in faculty. But I also realized that because I, after my PhD, I did a postdoctoral fellowship as well. During my fellowship, I really started to feel that I didn't enjoy being in academia the pillars of academia. So I couldn't see myself as a professor. I didn't enjoy grant writing. I didn't enjoy uh, writing those academic pieces and publications. I didn't like the fact that publications were the currency for success. So I started to feel that I didn't belong in academia and I didn't, I was not inspired by it, but I also felt, you know, ashamed by that because the unwritten rule was that that's the epitome of success. And then a lot of students feel pressure that if they don't become tenured or they don't find faculty positions, then they feel like they were, they failed, you know, out of a PhD, or maybe they weren't as successful as their peers who were able to find positions. So I, but I couldn't do that, which I didn't like. So I did leave academia and I eventually went into corporate for a few years. You know, it's kind of crazy how some people think that if you don't end up in academia, then that's a failure. Just like you said, there's not enough jobs to support the people that are graduating from these PhD programs. So, I mean, what are you supposed to do? The people that are there already, they're not retiring, so they're not giving up those jobs. It's not as if they're, they're, they're creating all that much more jobs that can support the people that are coming out of these schools. So it's just, you know, you got to find something to do. Well, it's really unfortunate, Neil. I really do believe that the school system, while they teach us all the subject matter that we need, depending on the major we choose, there is not a single day in university, and I have three degrees, and all three degrees, there's not a single day in university where they teach you how to navigate life and how to, how to live well and how to figure out what's important to me. Right. And there's instead, there's a lot of pressure around using our credentials to validate our intelligence, our intellect, and using that to validate our, our accomplishments. Whereas I think that if we spend a little bit more time in understanding what our values are, instead of going with the dogma of, you know, the, the, there's the hypno, hypnotic mechanism out there, the culture hypnotic mechanism tells us if we want to go do well, that we got to go to school and get good grades, work for a good company and work there and work hard long hours for 40 years and then retire. And I think that we would do better if we were to go back to the root of what is important to me and what life do I want to lead? What, what do I value and what kind of things do I want to have in my life? Not, you know, in, instead of subscribing to that, um, to that, uh, to what society tells us or what our professors tell, tell us. And I think that um, a lot of times the school systems don't teach us things. And they say, when we get, when we graduate, they give us our degree and they go, congratulations. Now go and make something, something of your life. And we don't, we're not equipped to do that. 
right? And, we, and the, only thing, the only way we know how is to apply for jobs or to wait for faculty positions to open up or to go to an internship and just stay and keep renewing our contract until a faculty position opens up. I think there, there's a lot to be said around, well, what is it that you want? Not what you think you should want, right? Or what you think you should do, but what is it that you truly desire and are inspired by? Yeah, you know, it would be it would be helpful if these yeah. universities were to help you in, in that in, in trying to figure all that out. But I guess it would likely be against their their best interest because they want you in their labs doing the work. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I don't know how, how quickly that change is going to come. But eventually you did end up in in corporate. What kind of work did you do in, in corporate? I was working for a biotech company and my job title was a senior product marketing manager. So it was a cross between marketing and a cross between business strategy and managing a product line. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Wow. So you went from working from a postdoc to marketing. Marketing, product management and business strategy. It was really those three parts. It wasn't just marketing. Yeah, yeah, but you didn't you didn't end up as a scientist or like a senior scientist. You went to marketing. What was the motivation for that? It was it was realizing that I didn't like academic research and I didn't enjoy being in a wet lab, you know, okay. chemicals, working with animal models. I did not enjoy that. I really couldn't stand it anymore. So then I thought that, well, maybe I need to find a job, a different job and do something different. So I left the academic pillars and I was able to persuade this company to hire me, even though I didn't have relevant work experience. I had the wrong degree. I didn't even understand how to read a ledger, but uh, I was able to persuade them to hire me. And there was that was my first foray into business. Yeah, that's, that's interesting because just as you said, you know, you're graduating with a with a degree uh, and then you got to do a postdoc and then you go into this non-technical role with no ex previous experience. What were you, how, how were you able to, to convince them to give you a shot? It's in, actually, it was interesting because I ended up meeting, I met someone who had a, who had influence within the company and it was through networking. It was really through networking. I've, I networked my way into this closed by invitation only event that I didn't belong in. And it, at that event, I met this person who worked at that company and I was able to figure out uh, what they were looking for at the moment. And they really wanted to have some connections uh, into some public health representative in, in the province where I was, where they were located. And I happened to be connected to that person. So I was able to set up an invitation with them. And this, they've been trying to get this this meeting for for months and i just sent an email and i set it up for them and they were really impressed with that because you know i had uh, contacts within the government and so then they wanted to meet with me because they wanted to figure out well who is this girl and how why do you have these connections and so i went and met, met with them and very soon after that the ceo wanted to meet me and they and then there was a there were negotiations around you know how i could add value to them and how i could be part of the team and that's nice. how it happened Nice. You know what? It, it just goes to show that, you know, networking and, and building those type of building relationships is is so important in just in life and in, in careers, just just in general. And that's 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 great that you were that, that you were able to, to do that. Absolutely. So then so you're you're, you're working this role and I'm, I'm guessing you, you liked it at first, but at some point you leave. What was the motivation to leave and then eventually go off and do your own thing? <laughs> oh, I had no idea what corporate was going to be like because here I am, right, green out of academia, and I didn't know anything else 
but academia, right? Because I went straight through. I didn't take any breaks. I didn't work outside of academia. So this is the first time I ventured out into what they call industry, right? There's always industry versus academics. And now I'm in industry. And it was, it was everything that you would expect from corporate life, you know, there was the bureaucracy, there was the hierarchy, you know, feeling undervalued, feeling um, unappreciated, all of it, right? And there was like, you know, there was a lot of politics and I just did not enjoy that. I was burnt out, you know, I fell sick as well, you know, just trying to, you know, try and, and, and I couldn't, and I couldn't do things that I felt like I needed to do, you know, I didn't want to, I didn't want to be dishonest. I didn't want to, I, I, it just wasn't the right fit. In many ways, it wasn't the right fit. So that was what, that's what led me to 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 quit and leave that leave that company. Okay, so was it always the plan to, to start your own thing, or did you ever consider just getting a job someplace else? Or- <laughs> it's funny, Neil, that you ask because I resisted it for a long time. During corporate, I knew I wasn't the right fit. I knew that they weren't going to buy and any of my ideas because you know if it's not fixed, if it's not broke, don't fix it. You know, and, and they don't they don't they don't welcome new ideas. It was really difficult to do my job, right? And, and I always felt that if I, wanted, if I wanted to create life that I desired, that I needed to create something on my own, right? That, because it wasn't for lack of searching. I literally scoured the job postings, hundreds of job postings, and not a single one spoke to my heart, not a single job posting. And it wasn't for the lack of trying to find something. Right? I even expanded my search. I was like, okay, I'm willing to relocate. And I was looking for, at cities across the, across the globe. I was like, okay, I'll I'm willing to move anywhere. And I still couldn't find a single job posting that I felt, yes, this is what I want to do. I can see myself doing this. So I felt this, the inner voice, as they say, saying, you know, that there was, it was like speaking to me and call, that calling saying, you got to start your own thing. You have to start your, you know, get, use your knowledge, monetize what you know, right? Build your own influence, build your own empire. But I resisted it for a long time because I felt that, well, I'm traditionally trained. I don't have an MBA. I wasn't born in a fa- into a family of entrepreneurs. I had all of these you know, objections. So I resisted it for a very long time. I resisted it for a year before I launched my company. Interesting. You mentioned that the, the, the postings that you saw didn't speak to your heart. Yeah. What would they have had to have said for them to have spoken to your heart? See, that's the thing. You don't know what you don't know. At that time, I had no idea, but I was, nothing appealed to me. If some of them listed a salary, the salary didn't appeal to me. Some of them didn't list a salary, but they had all these, like they, they tell you the, 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 the job qualifications and they tell you the job summary. And there were things in there that I just didn't, I couldn't see myself doing and I couldn't see myself doing it for a long time, let alone that. Or there were other job postings where, for example, I saw the, the job summary and I couldn't see the path forward. Like, where's the growth in it? Where, like that. So there was, there was a lot of different things that I saw that reasons why it didn't speak to me. Gotcha. So now you decide you're going to go off on your own. You're going to do your own thing. Yeah. What was what was that going to be? Did you have any idea of what your own thing was going to, going to be? You see, it's interesting. I I did, but I didn't know how it was going to work. And basically, I had hired a coach. I hired a business coach, and he said, "Look at your life. Look look. Take a survey of your life, and what things have you done what, that you've done that you're an expert in that you could teach someone else to do that will solve a very important problem for them." And the first thing that came to my mind was, well, I was able to change my career path, completely change my focus. And I was able to pivot twice in my career. I had 
not, I didn't even have the relevant work experience or I had the wrong degree and I was still able to pivot my career path. So then I decided career coaching. And then, so when I first lost my business, I launched it as a career coach, right? And I was helping uh, right, junior up until senior executive levels pivot their career, transition their career or elevate their career. And I did that. And that was how I launched my business. And it wasn't the first time I did career coaching because I recognized that during my PhD and during my postdoc and even during corporate, all of those years of my, my own career path, a lot of times my peers would reach out to me to ask for advice and I was giving it away for free anyway. So I said, okay, here's my opportunity to build influence and monetize what I know. And so now that's what I teach people how to do, right? It's not just career path. It's not just about career coaching. I teach them also how they can do what I did and monetize what I know and build influence and have a contribution in the world. So you said that you started as a career coach. Is that where you stayed or did you grow into other things? I grew into other things. All right. What were those things? Yeah. So career coaching was how I began the entrepreneurial path. But then I realized that, well, if I could teach people how to take what they know and how to monetize it and use what they already know and what they already do to build their own empire, to create legacy wealth and to have the most meaningful, their most meaningful contribution in the world, then that's what I could teach them how to do so that they could also be an expert in their domain and have build their empires doing exactly that. So that was what I branched into. And public speaking was, is a lot, is a part of my business as well. You know, being invited to stages around the world to speak on the areas of personal development, career, business, education, neuroscience, and even sales and marketing. Hmm. Have you ever worked with anyone who wanted to monetize something that after some research you thought or you saw wasn't monetizable? No, never happened because you see, knowledge has value, right? Knowledge has value. Applied knowledge has even more value. So there's not a thing out there that cannot be utilized to build influence and to help someone in very important ways. You just have to be able to find that, to be able to be solution oriented, right? Be able to seek problems, but be problem, but be able to also develop and innovate on solutions to those very important problems. Got it. Yeah, because I mean, you, you can have uh, you know, something that you're really great at, but if there's no, if there's no market for it, if people aren't willing to pay for what you're good at, then, then what, what, what use is it? But then I suppose there's uh, the, you have to have the ability to, maybe not, maybe not the words not convince or persuade, but to just to show the value of what, of what your, your talents are. And hopefully there, be, there are people that are out there that are willing to pay for them. See, Nia, I appreciate what you said, but it's not about expressing and uncovering value of what you know. It is expressing and uncovering the value of the outcome that you are going to provide because people aren't there and they're not investing in your knowledge. They're not investing in what you do and they're not investing in credentials. That's not what they're looking at. They're looking at the outcome of what's possible for, their, for them in their future, their desired outcome, their desired end state. And that's what you have to do a good job is because that's all what sales is. Sales is being able to uncover the value of what you can provide, the result you can bring to the client you're working with and doing that so well that they are willing to exchange the money they have in their bank account for what you have to offer. Right. 
So then I also said in the intro that you are you you have a podcast and you you have a YouTube channel as well. What was the the motivation to start both of those endeavors? Yeah. So being podcasting and YouTube really it's to get your message out there. To get your message out there and because people sometimes consume information they like to consume it by on a podcast on audio only some people like to watch video some people prefer the youtube because that's been their habit and so if i am in front of them if i can get in front of them then i can get my message to them and that's the thing you get your message out there and when your audience hears your voice they will follow you but you got to put great content out there you have to have content that makes people go wow and there's three things that I always subscribe to. If you put great content out there and you, te- you either teach someone something they don't already know or in your content, you're able to take them someplace they cannot go themselves. Or, you are, or the third thing is that in your content, you're able to take an, a thought that they already have and present it in such a way that they have a completely different perspective from it. Then they will follow you. They will follow you and they will change their life simply from the message that you provide, the transformation that comes from how they hear you and how they receive you. Wonderful. That's my impetus for starting both the podcast and the YouTube channel. Gotcha. When it comes to public speaking, is that something you've always been good at? And if not, what'd you do to get better at it? (laughs) No, nobody is born a great speaker. English was not even my first language. Can you believe that? And I spoke with an accent because I'm originally from Hong Kong. But uh, my, my mom really wanted me to be Western, more Western. So she gave me a, an English name, right? She made sure that I had a Canadian passport. And she took me to a speech pathologist to study English on a principles-based level, right? I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I didn't learn English naturally. I learned it by studying it by principles-based learning. So I can tell you, I can look at an English sentence and I can break it down into the subject predicate and all the parts of speech because I studied English principles, right? And so I learned also how to pronounce words in a very clear and concise way. I learned English phonics and that's why I sound the way that I do. But even after I learned English and studying it and expanded my vocabulary, I still wasn't a good speaker. And in the beginning, the only public speaking experience I had was during my PhD. The first time I spoke was standing by a poster board and standing there. I have pictures of it. I'm here. My arms are crossed. And I'm like, my posture is all like asking permission. I did not. I was not authoritative. I was really shy. I was very introverted. I was hoping that nobody would come by so I wouldn't have to talk to anybody. (laughs) And, And I didn't like the sound of my own voice. And this was how I began. So no, absolutely. I don't, I don't think that great speakers are born, but all of these skills are learnable. They are transferable. So the way that I got good at it was I went and I had speaker training. I hired a coach. I had speaker training. I practiced, but I made sure that what I practiced was going to give me the result I desired because practice does not make permanent. I'm sorry. Practice does not make perfect. Practice makes permanent. So I wanted to make sure that my practice was going to get me the outcome I wanted when I was speaking from stage. And it was just around doing it afraid. Overcoming the the fears I had of public speaking means that you got to do it afraid and focusing on the audience, not worrying so much about what they're going to think of me. You know, what are they going to do? You know, what are they going, how are they going to react to what I have to say? And years later, I am where I am now. Wonderful. 
When it comes to the presentations that you do, do you have a process for putting them together? And if so, what is it? Present, oh, it depends. I mean, is it a keynote address? Is it a seminar? Is it a workshop? It depends on what, what, is, what type of presentation it is. Because as a public speaker, you know, I do have to decide what industry I'm going to be speaking in and what is the type of talk I'm giving. So I have a different process depending on the type of talk. Okay. Let's say a keynote. If it's a keynote, usually keynotes are around 60 minutes. Usually they're like generally to be an hour. So I know I have an hour to fill and I know that I need to retain the audience's attention. Right. So the way that I plan a keynote is I always look at after my the first thing I ask myself is after my audience hears my keynote, what is the big transformation I want to provide? What is the key learning point I want them to take away? And what is the biggest shift I want them to have? Like, I want them to, after my keynote address, to, become, to come out of it a different person. So what is that outcome? It's got to be measurable. It's got to be statable. It has to be desirable. And it has to be understandable. So with that, then I come up with my talking points. I come up with my talking points. And my talking points are clear. All of those things, right? They are, they're, they're statable. They're measurable they're understandable, and they are desirable. And a bonus if there is an entertainment factor. Now, I'm not, I'm not one that is a stand-up com comedy, right? I'm not funny. I don't tell jokes. That's just not my personality. But there's elements of entertainment that I can provide in there. And if I can incorporate emotions, if I can incorporate stories, that's what makes the, the speech, the keynote address, more memorable and a lot more... Uh, palpable as well. Nice. When it comes to the, the presentations that you do, do you ever get nervous beforehand? And if so, how do you deal with your nerves? I don't get nervous anymore. I don't get nervous anymore, but I used to. <laughs> I used to. And, and I, I found that the, the biggest reason why people get nervous before an event is because they are focusing on themselves. They're making it about them. When you focus on yourself, that's when all of a sudden you worry about, oh, I don't want to fall flat on my face. I don't want to fail. I don't want to say something embarrassing. I don't want to look bad. And then the nerves come. But when you make it about them instead, and you just focus on serving the people who are there to hear you, who are there for that event or that organization, then all of a sudden the nerves aren't there anymore because it's not about you anymore. Nice. I like that. So these have been some excellent tips, Dr. Lee. Not focusing on yourself, I think, is a great one. And then when it comes to at least keynotes, it's you know, focusing on what the transformation is mm -hmm. and making sure it's measurable, understandable, stateable, and desirable. Can you offer any other tips to listeners or viewers to become more effective at public speaking? When you are talking about effective public speaking, my distinction of effective public speaking is to be able to communicate in such a way that they're able to have an experience from it. Because a lot of, because when you get done with a keynote address, an hour long keynote address, chances are they may not remember everything that you said, but they will remember how they felt before, during, and after your address. So I guess one of the tips that I would have is to create that experience. Create that experience. Nice. This has been really interesting um, talking to you, Dr. Lee. Thank you for taking time. How can people get in touch with you? Well, I invite you to follow me on, on YouTube. Dr. Grace Lee is my channel. 
And as well, follow me on LinkedIn. You will, you'll find me just by searching Dr. Grace Lee Vancouver, Dr. Grace Lee Neuroscience. My LinkedIn profile will prop up. Follow me there for insights every week, YouTube, uh, new videos every week as well. And I look forward to connecting. Wonderful. Well, everyone, that marks the end of another edition of Teach the Geek interviews. My name is Neil Thompson, founder of Teach the Geek. It's an online platform for science and engineering professionals. Consider checking out the public speaking course, Teach the Geek to Speak. You can learn more about it at teachthegeek.com. Again, that's teachthegeek.com. I also have an excuse assessment tool, which helps people in prioritizing solutions to excuses. You can learn more about that at download.teachthegeek.com. Until next time, take care and stay safe. Thanks, Dr. Lee. You're quite welcome. Thanks for having me. Well, everyone, that marks another episode in the can. I hope you enjoyed it. If you like these episodes and want to support Teach the Geek, please subscribe, share, and like on any of your favorite podcast platforms. Or on all of them. Also, if you prefer to watch the episodes, head on over to the YouTube channel at youtube.teachthegeek.com. Until next time.